Hi, I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is for all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. And I am super fucking excited for today's episode. Yeah, man. Hell yeah. I know you are. I am too. To all you listeners out there, we have some very special guests with us here today. Director Tom McLaughlin and CJ Graham to celebrate the 35th anniversary of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. They're going to spill their guts to us in an exclusive interview. We're going to talk to them about the making of the film, behind the scenes stories, the sequel, and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news rolled into one. All right, I'm going to start off by breaking in a new segment that will be on this and every future episode of High on Horror, Strain Wreck, where John and I tell you the strain that we're getting wrecked on in each episode. Yo, hand me, hand, hand, hand me that back. Oh, this is that funky town you've been telling me about. This stuff is... uh. It's like light green. It's almost kind of like whitish. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, funky town. It's derived from the funk strain. Uh, it's got a berry and earthy taste. Uh, so it's uh, it's nice to smoke. It's a hybrid, but it's uh, indica dominant, and the buds, like you just said, are just coated with fucking crystal trichomes. You know, uh, fucking beautiful. Uh, I'm gonna spark us up. What do you got going on this week in horror history? This week in horror history. This week, we have a 41st anniversary for Dress to Kill. Oh, yeah, man. I love Dress to Kill. How do you feel about it? Uh, It's pretty good. I feel like it definitely has a a psycho feel to it, uh, where you have the um, killer who dresses up as a woman and commits the crimes. Some of the stuff in the movie I don't think would go over well today, especially uh, the whole transgenderism uh, part of it. I don't think uh, that has aged uh, probably too well. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I can definitely... Hold on, take this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can see where you're coming from. Um, you know, uh, I'm not an egotist, you know, or an egotist, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not an egotist, but I am a cinephile, you know, and, uh, and I can tell you this, that, uh, there is often the difference between my favorite movies and what I think are, you know, the greatest movies of all time. To me, uh, Phantom of the Paradise is my favorite Brian De Palma film. I fucking love everything about that movie. And I think that, uh, although I do think that Dress to Kill is his masterpiece uh by far it's his best film technically done uh it is very hitchcockian as you said um uh it's also uh it's uh, what it doesn't get enough credit for is that it's also very it's very jallo inspired like it's it's definitely like his like love letter to jallos like i could definitely see some sergio leone in there and some dario argento like it's hitchcockian but i definitely also see the, the jallo inspiration there yeah i definitely see that as well and uh Fun fact, if you say my cocaine with a British accent, it comes out my cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, you got to stop smoking this shit. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. I'm good. Uh, Yeah, but I I definitely agree um, uh, with you on the Jallo aspect. Uh, Michael Caine does a great job, but he's a terrific actor. Uh, If we're talking favorite De Palma, um, I mean, I'd have to go with Scarface. I mean, yeah, Scarface, that's, that's, of course, you know, that's, that's, that's a no brainer, you know, that's, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's uh, you know Michael Caine, like you said, he, he absolutely kills it. He's such a fantastic actor, and uh, you won't really hear me complaining about uh, Dress to Kill. Besides the ending, I'm not a big fan of the Carrie ending. It's like a rip off. You know, it's a dream, and then a big jump scare, and you know you wake up out of the dream, and it's like oh, it was just a dream. <laughs> like I'm not a big fan of how he like reused his like same Carrie ending. Uh, I'm not a big fan of you know people who reuse their own scares in some way or another in general i think you know once you do it and you pull it off leave it alone uh so that deflates the movie a bit but besides that i think it's fucking awesome yeah and uh now it's time to get to our puff puff ass section where we answer questions that our listeners send in via social media on instagram facebook and also through email at ionhar420 at gmail.com All right, I'll start with the first question. Charles from Gallup, New Mexico asks, what's your favorite fight scene in a horror movie? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's the academic answer, and then there's my answer. Uh, the ac- academic answer would be they live, uh, but my answer is hands down <laughs> the rake and hoe scene from Hobgoblins. It's just so fucking entertaining that I can't even talk about it right now and not laugh. Um, I could watch it on loop, honestly. Um, It's so ludicrous, and I love it. Uh, uh, Sure, there's better acted fights, you know, and there's better effects in other movies. Um, But your question is what our favorite fight scene is. So I'm going to go with the Rake and Ho fight scene from Hobgoblins. You know, the shit never gets old. It's funny as shit uh, in a bad way. But still, if you haven't seen Hobgoblins, I highly recommend you do so. And I recommend you get good and toasted while you watch it to ensure enjoyability. (laughs) It's so bad it's good. It's one of those Vinegar Syndrome titles. Uh, It has a nice Blu-ray release uh, if you're into physical media like me. So I had not seen the Hobgoblins fight scene and uh, maybe 20 minutes ago, Drew had me watch it. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. There's there's really no way to describe it. You really have to see it for yourself. Um, I mean, yeah, I got to agree, though. They Live is definitely uh, my favorite fight scene. But there's some other other good ones. I mean, you have Freddy versus Jason. The whole twenty last twenty minutes of that is just a fight scene. Um, staying with Jason, I feel like one people don't bring up probably because the movie's so bad is Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight. Jason takes Manhattan. You already know where I'm going. You're with not this. bringing up the fucking boxing scene on the rooftop, dude. You're not doing it. Yes, I mean, come on. He just punches Jason, and then Jason just one hand just uppercuts his head. It rolls down into a dumpster. It's amazing. So you're going to criticize the Hobgoblin rake and hoe fight scene, but 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 go on with the boxing scene and Jason takes Manhattan where it's just this dude punching Jason out and then Jason punches his fucking head off. Were you not entertained? Were you entertained with the Hobgoblin's fight scene? I don't... <sighs> the simple answer, the quick answer is yes. But it's not for the same reasons. The Hobgoblin fight is just absolutely ridiculous. Look, yeah, in all seriousness, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, you know, everything about that movie, like, the end credits scene of just the credits rolling is better than the the entire Hobgoblins movie. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know, you are right, I'm just busting your balls, but come on, dude, you got to like that scene. I know you're going to show your fiancé when you get home later. (laughs) Ah, yeah, it's it's so ridiculous. Another good fight scene, Child's Play. 
I mean, the whole end of that movie, um, Evil Dead 2. But I mean, I, I would still stick with uh, with They Live. And uh, getting into our second question comes here from our good friend Kenny in Denver, Colorado. He has what horror movies uh, got us into horror and uh, what movies we would recommend to horror fans, well, new horror fans, as mandatory viewing. I mean, I know Drew's going to say the same thing, but the, the movie that really got me into horror movies was Halloween, the original 1978. I remember watching that real young with my dad. He had had him recorded off of VHS tapes with like the 80s commercials. I wish I still had those somewhere. Uh, that... Uh, the other thing I got started with was uh, the Universal Monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, Wolfman, Invisible Man, Mummy. Um, mandatory watching. Um, I mean, you always got to go with the classics, the the Universal Monsters. But if you're not in the black and white, uh, some some newer ones just in recent years. I know this one's a controversial one, but it follows. I feel like that's a good one. It's kind of a throwback to the 80s movies. Um, you always got to watch, watch the slashers, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. As, as much as I love Friday the 13th, I don't think it's necessarily mandatory viewing. Uh, if you're a big fan, you'll just want to watch that. Um, The Shining's a good one. Um, what about you, Drew? Yeah, uh, I just, I, I agree with basically, you know, you're, you're on the money with a lot of your recommendations. Uh. Uh, as you said, Halloween definitely got me into the genre, uh, me as well as you. Um, it, it scared me and intrigued me enough to keep me coming back for more. Halloween was the film that hooked me. Um, Michael looked amazing, and the music is terrifying. As far as recommendations go to new horror fans, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I'm a big believer in doing your homework. Uh, when I was home watching movies, instead of socializing with people and making friends like I should have been, um, I didn't just watch what was hip. I wanted to know the genre because I love horror that much. Uh, to many people, you know, who are longtime horror fans, um, but they've never gotten like to the basics or essentials, and that's always baffled me. People can talk about paranormal activity all day long, but how often do you hear the cabinet of Dr. Caligari getting brought up? Not often. Uh, so my answer, Kenny, is uh, do your homework, bro. Uh, here's a list of the ten films to start you off. Uh, Mixing a little bit of everything in to widen your scope on the genre, I would say do The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, The Bride of Frankenstein, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Truth is, you should watch all the Universal Monster movies, but the two that you're going to take the most away from is Bride and Creature. Dracula is a bit slow, and The Wolfman could have been more, honestly, in my opinion at least. You know, uh, new horror fans going into those films tend to be super critical, but Bride and Creature will legit have you going, damn, how'd they pull that off back then? And I think that's what you really want when you watch those movies nowadays. Uh, I also would throw in The Lost Boys, An American Werewolf in London, Reanimator, The Exorcist, Jaws, Hellraiser, The Changeling. Uh, start there, Kenny. Uh, you got vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein, zombies, possession, animal attacks, demons, gore, and ghosts all in a concoction. So uh, I hope you enjoy the ride. Uh, yeah, those are 10 good movies. I mean, if I could add a vampire movie on there, my favorite vampire movie would have to either be Fright Night or uh, Near Dark. I would. Solid. Yeah, I'm a... Uh, Fright, Fright Night was another one that I watched a lot when I was younger. And uh, that's always been my favorite vampire one. I, I could also suggest uh, Solo, a Serbian film, uh, Martyrs. 
<laughs> Necromantic inside. Uh, what else can we do here? Uh, yeah, it's better if I don't go farther than that. Yeah, you should definitely just disregard anything said after Fright Night. And for all you listeners out there, if you have a question for us, reach out via Instagram and Facebook at High on Horror 420 or email us at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at High underscore Horror. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Make sure you get all the latest up to date information. And now it's time to get into our film review and discussion of Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Okay, so it's 1985 and fans are pissed. They feel that a new beginning ripped them off. It was a knockoff. It was a knockoff Jason. And a lot of people lost hope in the series. Insert Tom McLaughlin. Tom used his comedy background to lighten the mood of the dreary Friday the 13th films, but still keep it a straight slasher film and Jason lives. The film starts with Jason being awoken by Tommy Jarvis, who just can't let shit the fuck go. In an attempt to kill an already dead Jason, he inadvertently awakens him and gets his friend killed. What happens from there is the usual. Jason picking apart motherfuckers left and right. Only this time, Camp Crystal Lake was renamed Camp Forest Green to shake its bad history. Meanwhile, Tommy tries to convince the cops that he's not insane or a shit stirrer. We get some great kills and a few good laughs, and we get to see Jason with a motivation that he's never had before. The film comes to a close as Jason and Tommy fight it out underwater, leading to Jason being chained to a rock and left to rot at the bottom of the lake with the old Camp Crystal Lake sign that's long been forgotten laying at his feet. Uh, yeah, we definitely had to switch it up up this week, and we had Drew uh, give, give the synopsis, and I'll kind of talk a little more in depth. This is my favorite Friday the 13th movie, period. It's not like where Drew and I talk about Halloween and we say, what's your favorite Halloween besides the original? I I know it's going to be controversial. I like it better than the original. I feel like it's just the perfect culmination of everything from all the Friday the 13th movies. C.J. Graham is amazing as Jason. The story's well done. It's It has that Scream self-awareness, but 10 years before Scream came out. Um, it's It's... Yeah, like, like I said, it's my godfather of Friday the 13th movies. Um, Drew, how do you feel about it? Uh, well, personally, uh, the final chapter, part four, is my favorite. But I think that part six is probably right after it. Uh, part six is very fucking good. Um, it's definitely a step in a new direction for the series. And what I like about what Tom McLaughlin did is that uh, although it is humorous, and that's one of the things people pick up about it, it's kind of like an American Werewolf in London where like it's not a horror comedy. There's more horror in it. There's just enough horror in it to balance out the comedy to not make it a comedy film. You never hear people say Friday the 13th is a horror comedy. They just, you know, they just mention there's humor in it. So that goes to tell you that the humor is very well done. Yeah, and the, and the humor doesn't take away from the story at all. I mean, you have the camp counselor, Court, who he's telling this ridiculous Native American story to these kids, just making stuff up. Like, even the kids, like, even have, have their little funny moments. Even when Jason's trying to track down the counselors, you just hear the kid go, we're dead meat. Like, like the comedy's well done. Um, 
if I had to criticize any of the comedy from it, um, it it would it would maybe just be the gravekeeper looking to the to the screen when he says some people have a weird sense of humor, uh, but it, it it doesn't destroy it for me. Yeah, like what you were saying about the humor, you know, like the one lines, like the two little boys. So what were you going to be when you grew up? <laughs> yeah, and like of all the Friday the Thirteenth, I mean. I got to say it's the most quotable and has the most memorable lines, right? I mean, I can't disagree with that. And I mean, that's just a credit to the work Tom did in, in writing the script. And I mean, the beginning's great. It has that gothic feel. And we have, I mean, right out of Frankenstein, we have the lightning bolt hit and revives Jason. And then we have the, we have zombie Jason for the first time. And then, I mean, we even have nods to, um, the James Bond series mm -hmm. in just the beginning um, and I feel like it, it took Jason serious enough and the story's well done. It's a good culmination of the Jarvis trilogy. I think Tom Matthews do, does a great job. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, definitely, uh, some of the most memorable kills and Jason is just fucking just a force of nature in this movie. And that's something, you know, people praise Kane Hodder and they should, he did a great job as Jason, but CJ was the first person to bring that intensity. He was the first person to not be like slow, dumb Jason. He's still slow, dumb Jason, but for some reason he came back from the dead, motivated like a motherfucker and angry Kane Hodder and his like, you know, brute force mentality towards the role that started after CJ did his thing. Yeah, I mean, Jason just straight up yoked a person right out the window <laughs> and left their slippers on the floor. But, uh, yeah, and I mean, like, it has, like, even even the people are more self-aware. These people have realized, uh, we've had a lot of killings at this camp. Uh, let's change the name of it, but it, it doesn't matter. As Tommy Jarvis says, it's still Camp Crystal Lake to Jason. And, I mean, the body count is pretty large. Uh, there, there were some kills that were added on, but, and it's more, um, it just seems to be the more of, of the kid Friday the 13th. I always feel like everybody who's seen six, it's always younger kids is like the first Jason they experienced. It's funny you say that because I just let my youngest son, Abel, watch a little bit of it. I, I, you know, turned him away from like any serious stuff, but you know, him watching Jason, you know, walk around the cabin or walk around and stuff like that. He, you know, he, you know, he's, he's at that age where he's like looking at things like that and he's just like, oh my God, you know, he's, he's, it's awesome to him, but I definitely have to shield stuff from him. But yeah, it, my point is that that is like the Friday the 13th film that I showed him because it is absolutely the safest to view. It's like, you know, I don't have to worry about, you know, boobs every other second or, you know, like just gore everywhere like it, it's more of a fun movie like of the friday the 13th films when you look at the jasons you know like you have if you have a, a printout or you look them up online and you look at jason from you know young jason to part one all the way through to the last you know um Derek Mears, you know, in the remake, when you go through and you look, CJ Graham's always stands out because he's always iconic with those gloves and holding that fence post that, you know, the metal spike that he took out of the fence, that image and just everything about it is like so strong, you know, that, uh, that, yeah, like, like, you know, the movie's badass, the Jason's badass, everything about it's badass. I, yeah. I mean, I can't really say, say anything else. I mean, like I said, it's my favorite Friday. It's just the culmination of everything that was done well in the other Fridays. I would say really my only complaint in the entire movie, but it still makes me laugh anyway, is when the guy gets thrown into the tree and then you just see the bloody like smiley face carved into it. It's ridiculous, but I, 
I still laugh every time. Yeah, and then you have Jason who like actually like lifts the lifts the machete up and then realizes that the arm is still attached to it. And although Jason does not have a facial expression, you know, it's the way that it's acted is very humorous. So it's it's just it's a humorous, you know, it's a very humorous humorous thing for Jason to do. Yeah, and I mean, I gotta imagine we both have the same favorite kill where where uh, Sheriff Garrish just gets folded backwards. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's definitely my favorite one, though. I do think. Um, that if some of the other scenes, you know, weren't edited, it might not be that way. But with what we have on screen, yeah, I definitely would agree. And now it's time to get into Burn and Learn, the segment of our show where we like to fill you in on some cool trivia facts about our episode's topic. In this case, Jason Lives. Oh. Burn and Learn. When Jason wakes up in the grave... That's not C.J. Graham's eye that you see with the maggots on it. That is second unit effects guy Chris Swift's eye in that shot. There was only one motorhome, so they had one take. They reinforced the sides of the motorhome so that when it fell on its side, uh, it wouldn't collapse like a tin can. C.J. Graham weighed 240 pounds in the role of Jason. At the end of the film, when there's blood all over the cabin, 30 gallons of blood were used to create the scene. The cemetery in which Jason is buried is a set, not a real cemetery. Tom McLaughlin's brother, Jim, made the heart that Jason rips out of Alan's chest. Sheriff Garris is a nod to Tom's friend and fellow horror director and fan, Mitt Garris of Sleepwalkers and Critters 2 fame. CJ almost killed Tom's wife in the scene where he stabs the fence post through the windshield. Gravekeeper Martin making the film self-aware by looking into the camera when he talked got the film good reviews surprisingly tom brought kids into the script to create a sense of dread because you don't want kids to die jason lives was filmed in two days of day shots and six weeks of night shots six days a week the car chase with tommy jarvis sheriff garris and deputy cologne was supposed to be longer but there were restrictions with the cemetery due to there being a lot of confederate graves so that's why they got out of their cars and do a foot chase if you look closely, you'll see that Court takes off a condom after sex in the motorhome. Tom McLaughlin said that if he was going to have sex in the movie, that he was going to promote safe sex. Tom felt that sex shouldn't be serious and should wink at the series. Frank Mancuso Jr. was fine with that so long as Tom didn't make fun of Jason. Speaking of Frank Mancuso Jr., he was a big fan of David Bowie, so when he and Tom got together, they titled the film Aladdin Sane to keep the film a secret. Kevin Williamson said that Jason Lives inspires the humor in Scream. Since Jason came out of the grave, Tom wanted to show that he was a supernatural force. Therefore, Jason kills people in impossible ways to reiterate that point. Garrus, Martin, and Sissy's deaths were not in the original script. They were added in to up the body count. Composer for the series, Harry Manfredini, he said that Jason Lives is the only Friday the 13th film to actually be a real movie. Alice Cooper, who did the song He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask, reached out to Tom Kelly, who did Material Girl for Madonna, to give the song more of a pop. Jason Lives brought in $19 million at the box office. That was the lowest grossing in the series. Tom was obsessed with Sean Connery's James Bond films after his dad took him to see Dr. No, and that's what inspired the James Bond opening. This was Tony Goldman. Uh, you know him. Uh, he's the asshole in Ghost, um, the one behind Patrick Swayze's murder. Uh, Tony Goldman, this was his first film role. 
the blue pickup truck, which Tommy drives in the same, is the same truck that Pam drives in Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Uh, the little girl who keeps having nightmares is called Nancy, which has been interpreted by many fans as a nod to the protagonist in A Nightmare on Elm Street, played by Heather Langenkamp. However, director Tom McLaughlin actually named the little girl after his wife, Nancy McLaughlin, who, pays, who plays Lizbeth in the film. The first film in the series to feature Jason being shot. Darren tries to shoot Jason with a Herbert Schmidt revolver. The first film in which Jason doesn't run, he speedwalks. And lastly, the body count in Jason Lives is 18. Now let's get into our interview with Jason himself, CJ Graham, and director Tom McLaughlin. Today we have two special guests with us here to help us celebrate the 35th anniversary of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Up first we have C.J. Graham from Military Vet, the nightclub owner, to bouncer, to stuntman and actor. C.J. Graham's portrayal of Jason Voorhees is simply put, a brute force of nature. He's my personal favorite Jason, so much so that C.J. egged me on at the last Monster Mania to say to Kane Hodder, that he was my favorite Jason and part six was the best Friday the 13th, to which Kane then called me a fucking idiot. And we also have Tom McLaughlin, who started his career in comedy and doing mime work. Once he turned director, he put out the classic gothic horror film, One Dark Night, starring Meg Tilly in 1983. And then three years later, he did Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. Tom is quoted as saying, it's not a question of how gory or intense, but did you have a good, good thrill ride? 35 years later, here we are talking about it, so I'd have to say yes, it was a good thrill ride. CJ and Tom, thank you both for joining us today on High on Horror. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, guys, I'd like to jump into uh, some questions real quick about uh, Friday the 13th Vengeance. Uh, I just watched it recently, and... Uh, definitely got me thinking um tom you wrote an alternate ending to jason lives in which jason's dad elias visits jason's grave and tips the gravekeeper that scene is the opening scene in friday the 13th vengeance how did that come about and how did you get involved with that also as you're playing the gravekeeper a nod to bob larkin <laughs> uh yeah a lot of, a lot of turns and twists in that question uh, to answer it uh basically yeah um I couldn't do Jason's dad in mine uh, because they did not want to confuse the audience after part five that they thought perhaps Tommy Jarvis is going to be the next Jason. So they wanted to make sure that it was clear that Jason is back and that's it. So we took that out. Years later, um, I was contacted with these guys that wanted to do the father story. And, uh, you know, the convincing point to me is when they said CJ is going to be playing him. And I went, I love that. That's great. Yeah. Run with the ball. See what, see, see what you can do with it. Um, and they, you know, sent me uh, a couple of different drafts along the way. Uh, I gave a few notes, but basically I said, you know, I, I don't want to have like a connection on the writing because you've got so many tributes to Jason lives in there. It's going to look like, oh, you got Tom in there and he just copied himself. So, you know, let, let them do, the, do it the way they wanted to do it. And then they offered me the part of the uh, Gravekeeper at the beginning, um, which I thought that that's even better because I actually get to do uh, a role with CJ. And from going from 30, 
whatever it was years ago uh, to that, um, having that chance of working with him and, um, you know, as actor to actor as opposed to director to actor was really exciting. Um, so, yeah, it, it all kind of just worked out. Okay, awesome. Um, that that's 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 really cool. That was a really cool thing to see. Um, and uh, CJ, um, I got a question for you. Uh, you got to work with Sackhead Jason from Part Two, the late Steve Dash. How was it getting to work together? And uh, was the reason that his death was off screen due to his uh, passing in real life? You know, it was, it's kind of the same same similar answer. Tom, the opportunity just to play Jason Voorhees' father, Elias. First and foremost, nobody's ever seen Elias Voorhees on screen. You know, Tom had him on some boards, and there's always been talk in the comics and books, but not a physical character. So that in itself was, first and foremost, just a cool opportunity. Not to mention that I had played Jason 35 years ago, so the DNA was connected. Uh, working with Steve Dash was a blast. I mean, Steve Dash, you know, he's been gone now about two and a half years. Uh, Steve was one of those men that would just tell you where to plant it, and then he'd tell you F off and walk on um, with love, respect. But that was Steve Dash. He very forward. He used to tell us that if he had F and known what was going to happen with Jason, none of us would have ever got the job again because he'd have done every one of them. So you got to remember Steve Dash for just being Steve, being forward, being a great man. You know, he spent uh, multiple years as a police officer back in the 60s. He was in the military. He never talked about it much, but and then he was down in Florida when he retired and continued to do conventions uh, until his passing about two and a half years ago. Um, okay, well, uh, your character Elias Voorhees turns out to be the one who killed the counselors in the opening of the original film. I liked that twist. Uh, and then you know you're playing older Elias, uh, and you don't just kill people, but you actually talk. How did it feel to actually have lines of dialogue in a Friday the Thirteenth film? You know, the the easy part for me is I had no expectations. You know, being the first. You get to do the creativity of it. Working with Tom is the easiest part. He's my boss. You know, um, here's he's my cheerleader, always has been, going back 35 years. So when you got Tom behind you, it's pretty easy to step forward. Um, on the second side of the question, as far as the character itself, there was no pretensed character. Physically, structurally, I'm the same size as I was 35 years ago. Uh, so that's why I've got this beard going on right now for shooting next week. Um, to step into the role of Elias Voorhees, the same walk as Jason 35 years ago, the connectivity that's supposed to be there between part six into the Vengeance series um, was a really nice creative, uh, just a nice simple formula moving forward and easy for me just to step into the role. Okay, well, uh, one more question. I, I looked it up online and I could not find any information about it, so I have to ask you in person here. Uh, Jason Brooks, who played Jason in the film, also played the town drunk, and he gets killed by Jason. Who played Jason in that scene? Was that you? For me, um, that, Jason Brooks in, in Vengeance plays Jason, uh, and there's a couple scenes where we square off, father-son, so to speak. Um, it's kind of like, you know, uh, daddy knows best. Uh, but we disagree like most fathers and sons. So for him to step in the role, very similar physical structure size. Uh, we're both about 6'3", 6'4", both around 240, 250. Uh, so he did a good job of imitating all of the Jasons over the past 40 years and putting into one his own creativity and bits and pieces of everybody into his Jason. Okay, and uh, now uh, moving on here to Friday the 13th, Part 6. Um, we're talking about it 35 years later. Uh, did you guys uh, think that this movie would still be talked about and loved this much 35 years later? 
Um, well, CJ and I were pretty confident of it. You know, we've basically invested everything we had in there, but they ripped us off. We never got anything, but we knew it. No, we didn't. No, the truth is, as far as um, we were all concerned, it was like in the 80s, we were making these movies because there was, you know, a, a want for them. And there was a chance for all of us to get breaks and get a chance to do, you know, a film. And uh, so many, many of those things, and I'm talking whether it was, you know, Chucky or, you know, Michael Myers or, you know, any of the monsters of the 80s, um, we really looked at it not like the great, you know, horror monsters of the 30s, Frankenstein, Dracula and stuff. It was like, okay, this is monsters to this generation, and that was going to be it. All of us are amazed and honored and thrilled over the fact that 35 years later, we are talking about this far more than we did when they came out, you know, because it was sort of like the critics, you know, so hated them. You didn't really want to do publicity because you were going to get blasted. Although much to my shock, we actually got good reviews on this one because of the humor. Um, I couldn't take it really seriously and I had a humor background. So putting that in ended up really kind of helping us critically. But as far as the fans concerned, I thought they were going to hate it. I mean, honest to God, when I went to the first screening, I thought, okay, here we go. Here's the end of my career. And they went nuts. And it was great for Paramount because they were afraid the franchise could have been finished on part five. So it was kind of resurrected, not only Jason, but the, the series. And obviously it's continued on. And I, I agree with Tom. Uh, you know, I was very, very fortunate to be on Tom's coattails uh, where he pulled me into this opportunity to be talking about it three decades later. Um, we had, I had no idea, you know, Tom said, here's the job, here's what I want you to do. Uh, he gave me a little bit of a direction, but for the most part, just gave me the ideas that he had in his mind. And my job was to go forward with it. Um, no role, of course, speaking, but I will tell you, I challenge anybody to put on a hockey mask or even a stocking and try to show fear, anger, curiosity, uh, without saying a word where they can't see the expressions on your face. It takes a little more skill set than most would think. Yeah. And, you know, humorously thinking about it today, over the last 10 years, it seems every hero in all these DC movies are all wearing masks. But nobody wanted to wear a mask back in the 80s, did they, Tom? They all wanted to be seen. No. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of the thing, too, is that CJ brought so much of his training, his ability, uh, you know, understanding, intelligence, and because, you know, Jason, the new Jason was like a, a electrified killing machine with an agenda, which was to get Tommy. And so it was, you know, he wasn't just kind of lumbering, you know, get my way, I'll kill you. He had a mission. And obviously coming out of the military, CJ knows what it's like to be on a mission. And you felt that through literally every pore in his body, um, which was just great. I mean, he really, to me, redefined what the what the character is. And Still, I mean, I I love what Kane's done. I love what a lot of the other guys have done in the past and, and so on. But still, what I think CJ did really defined it. And so many times when they talk about the, the franchise, the picture they show is that one of CJ you know, with the uh, spear in his hand. And that's like, he's back, there's the weapon, you know, and you can even feel it through the photograph that this guy, you know, means business. Oh yeah, I have to totally agree. Um... 
It, it is one of the more iconic photos from Friday the 13th and, and the whole series. And uh, this movie definitely made it feel like Jason was back. And I know uh, you had mentioned some of the humor in the movie, and it kind of had a tongue-in-cheek uh, with some callbacks to other slashers. And it was something that wasn't really done at the time. What made you decide to go that route with it? I guess purely because I looked at it like this is the sixth one and there really hasn't been a franchise other than the James Bond movies, you know, that did this. So, of course, the first thing out of my head was, oh, I got to do a tribute to James Bond because that they, they, that's one thing they have in common. And, you know, obviously the, the humorous approach of Jason coming through there. And that really kind of set the tone of what the movie's going to be is it's going to be, you know, a tribute in a way to horror movies, gothic horror movies, you know, universal monsters, like bring him back just like Frankenstein with the lightning bolt. And then in general, just having the actors be savvy to the fact that, you know, I've never seen a horror movie where anybody wearing a mask is friendly, you know, or the, the fact that they had a card game about, you know, uh, Jason and the cabins and stuff. So there was like a, you know, a humor about the characters. So I was trying to get the audience to like them as much as possible so when they got killed, it was like, oh, shoot, I love them. They were great. As opposed to, yeah, get that bitch, which so many of the other movies were doing. And I just never bought into that, you know, from the standpoint of way, you know, women were being treated. And I wanted to equally kill as many guys and also do it in a way that you could not imitate what CJ was doing, you know, in these these kills. You, couldn't, you can't punch through a heart. You can't turn a head and pull it off. So many of them, you know, were super strength. So, you know, once you kind of establish all these different rules, I just wanted to stay, stay to them. The only thing that I ended up breaking, other than not being able to do his father, was that I had 13 kills. And I was sort of proud of the fact that, you know, Jason's going to kill 13 times in this movie. Um, and then when we previewed it, the executive producer, Frank Mancuso, said, you know, I think we need three more kills. I go, why? We got enough to go, no, 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 I just feel like we've got, to, you know, have three more deaths. It's like, well, aren't we like, like, under over budget and he goes no no you're under budget we are okay so we went one night and shot the killing of the caretaker and the two you know the couple out there that are having a little romance and there was our three all in kind of one big scene and that was the only thing that i went like well i wanted 13 but fine you know 16 is cool too and uh, you had mentioned about uh, Jason being brought back like Frankenstein's monster and uh, this friday the 13th definitely had a more gothic feel um where, where did the idea come from to bring that to Friday the 13th as well with the comedy? Uh, partly, I guess, because of One Dark Night, my first movie. And that's very much a tribute to Hammer horror movies and Universal horror movies in terms of the claustrophobic gothic horror. And Frank Mancuso Jr. saw that film and, you know, asked me to meet and said, you know, I think your sensibilities would be interesting to put into a Friday. So I basically said to myself, okay, well, he likes that direction, so I'm going to light it and make it sort of feel that way. And then the other side of it was just that, you know, my big influences were all those monsters from Universal and the horror movies of, of Roger Corman and, uh, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe things. So, you know, if you really study it and dissect it, there's so many things that you can see where, oh, I know where that came from. Some of it was conscious, a lot of it was subconscious. I mean, hell, I wrote the thing in a cemetery, so who knows who I channeled while I was sitting there writing. And uh, this also sticks out also as well as uh, the only Friday the 13th movie that doesn't feature any nudity. Uh, was that a conscious choice that you had made? 
No, that was kind of, you know, I hired Darcy DeMoss in the script. It said that she was supposed to be topless. We got into the scene and um, she looked at me and she said, do you really need me to take the top off? And I said, why? And she goes, I'm just really uncomfortable about that. And I, I don't know, I kind of, I'm, I'm trying to not have me be associated with that. And I didn't sign a thing saying that, you know, I would do it. And I went, look, you uncomfortable, keep it on. We'll, we'll, we'll get the tits from Tom Fridley, you know? And so that was it. It was just trying to be respectful to the actress who, who didn't want to do it. And I didn't think, you know, if, People are going to be that upset because they missed that one element. <laughs> then I don't know what to say. So it, now it's kind of become that movie where, you know, oh, yeah, that's the one with uh, no breasts. So I, what can I say? Did the uh, studio give you any pushback on that since it kind of became a staple of the series? No, they they were in free fall at that moment. I had so much freedom. Frank was just a godsend of, as a writer, director, because he just, you know, hey, you make the movie you want to make. If something seems like it's not going well, I'll step in. And as I said, the only thing was after we finished the movie and he said, I want to add three more kills. Can't complain about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I really had a lot of creative freedom and had such a great cast and bounced stuff constantly off of them so that I could get their personalities. And like I was saying with CJ, you cast for certain types of people because you know they're going to bring something to the role that's, above and beyond what's on the paper. Uh, now, CJ, uh, before this, you had no previous uh, stunt experiences prior to taking this role. Uh, how did you become involved in the project? You know, I was, I was fortunate. Uh, I had done a skit at a club that I was general manager, and uh, the real effects people that were shooting the, the film for this hypnotist had done the special effects on part four. And they just said, why don't you put something with Jason in character for the hypnotist and we have the part four, you know, costume from Ted White. We'll put CJ in it, you know, his big ass, and throw him up on the stage. And really, the rest is history. Uh, they momentarily just looked at me and thought, what a Jason. We're going to cast you if we get a shot at it. And then it just came about. Unfortunately, I was the second choice, which I was just happy to be considered when I got to meet Tom and Frank Mancuso Jr. and Michael Nomad. To me, that was just an honor. Uh, and then things didn't work well for the stunt coordinator, the stunt man that did it. The scene with the paintball uh, in the belly, that's not me. Uh, he's a little thicker than I am, uh, but it just didn't come across the screen, I believe, as Tom and Frank Mancuso wanted to in the, the dailies that came back. So within three, four days, I was uh, back down, approved, and uh, in Covington, Georgia, in wardrobe, working for Tom. And, and what was it like being in the full Jason costume for the first time? For me, it was just, you know, number one, Tom's easy. We both have a very similar love for the 60s, the Universal Monsters. Uh, really, Tom, I think the high point for me was he just had to give me a mission and tell me what to do. Give me the the generics. I'll stay inside the perimeters. I won't color outside the lines too far. And he just let me go. I'll always remember my first scene, first time in wardrobe, and Tom had me step into the side profile of Jason with the motor hum behind me. And I would turn and tilt my head. And then Tom told me, when you start walking, pump your lats out. I want to just see physical character walking towards it. And that was my first scene. And that I'll always remember because I'll always remember Tom saying, pop your lats out when you start walking. And that was that. And uh, was there anything that you personally wanted to bring to the Jason character? Well, I wanted to make sure that I didn't uh, 
disrespect the franchise. I know Tom was trying to get a better launching platform away from part five to, you know, accelerate where part five had kind of crashed a little bit, maybe burned. So for me is I just didn't want to let Tom down. Most importantly, I didn't want to let Frank Mancuso Jr. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident Tom had the final decision. It's his movie. Um, for him to give me the opportunity, I need to step out and make sure that I deliver a product for Tom because his name is on it. You know, I was just a potentially a shot in the dark and thank goodness it worked. And uh, back at Monster Mania, um, sadly, the last one we've had before COVID back in 2019, you said that your favorite kill is the one where you just fold Sheriff Garris up like a lawn chair. Uh, do you have any other kills that you really enjoyed from the movie? Well, and the reason I say that is because it was there's no blood, there's no guts, there's no heart, there's no brains. It's just pure power force. And I just thought when Tom and uh, I assume it was Michael Nomad, the stunt coordinator, put that together, I just looked at that and said, that's got to be the easiest formatted stunt I've ever seen with a body part in a in a hole and a body part standing in the hole and just leaning back on the other body part. I thought, how creative, but how cool. And that was that was the one, you guys, that we had the most amount of problems with the motion picture rating board, you know, because we had to keep cutting it down. We had nine screenings for them trying not to get an X. And the last thing they kept picking on was that scene. And we're going, why? There's not a drop of blood. It's physically impossible to do that. What, you know, what's the big deal? And their only response was it's cumulative. By the time we get to that one, we've seen so much, as far as we were concerned, enough's enough. And the interesting thing in the screenings, even today when I see it with an audience, that's the one that people go crazy on. Um, and it is, it's very simple. And it's an old gag that I actually stole from myself that I did with Dick Van Dyke uh, back in the 70s on a comedy show, a chiropractor thing where we bent Dick like that, you know, for, for humor. But I thought, well, what if we did it seriously and had Jason actually do that to somebody? So, you know, it, it really paid off in a way I certainly didn't expect. Yeah, I, I've noticed some of the standards the Motion Picture Association has uh, for stuff with horror movies just doesn't make sense. That That is the least goriest kill in the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, it's there, there was no rhyme or reason in those days. They were so kind of upset with the whole, you know, you know, splatter movies, as they called them. Um, there was just too much bloodletting and all that. And I was trying to do this in a way that it wasn't about creating effects that you knew were going to get cut out. Um, obviously, you know, part seven, John Buechler after me, I mean, so much of his great stuff because a makeup effects artist, nobody ever got to see because they cut all that stuff out. Um, which was really a drag. I went in going, all right, I know what they're going to do. Let me try to come up with stuff that they can't hurt too much. Um, and there was a few things I really wished, you know, I had lost, like the triple decapitation looked amazing. What these guys did when the blade went through all and all three heads fell. Um, there was a, just a couple of things like that. But at the end of the day, the movie's still, you know, intact. And there isn't like a director's cut, you know, that exists. You know, that's, that's, pretty much it with just a few trims and uh we had mentioned uh the rv uh but i had a question about cord and nikki in the rv and uh, both of you can feel free to answer this nikki tells cord he has to last until the end of the song cj as jason you rip the electric out and nikki says oh court you didn't already i mean i gotta think that court was in the right when he said the song was over real right <laughs> yes 
A contract's a contract. <laughs> yeah, not not a lot of guys get the advantage of that excuse, you know. So, Tom, I have a question for you. Um, in my opinion, besides the final chapter, your entry in the Friday the 13th series is the only film in the series to have characters that you actually care about. You do not want these characters to die. Uh, do you feel that the rest of the series would have benefited from you know using that method? That's really personal in terms of, yeah, I mean, Joe Zito, uh, who directed part four, that's you know, if somebody says, what's your favorite Friday? I'd say, well, the original one was the one that I, you know, saw and thought, okay, they took Halloween and obviously added much more gore and had a wonderful twist that it was the mother. Um, and then it, when I had to watch all of them together, Joe Zito's part four jumped out at me for that very reason. I liked the characters. I thought it was well-directed, well-structured, and it was, you know, basically supposed to be the end of the series. So they really kind of went for it to make it, you know, go out on a bang. Um, the other ones, it, it, every director kind of came at things kind of differently. I mean, obviously part three had a lot of great stuff in it, but its gimmick was the 3D. You know, part two had to figure out how the hell did we take this young boy and now he's got to be threatening. So we got a completely time jump. Um, and now he's there and he's got... I looked at as the elephant man sack over his head. Um, and, you know, that was sort of its thing, you know, that, that made it different. And then five, um, you know, that, that particular director kind of came from a very kind of low budget and, and, you know, pornography and things. So there was a lot of sex in part five, you know, a lot of stuff that ended up getting cut out. And then obviously seven, you had a special makeup effects guy directing it. So, you know, Kane Hodder's makeup and I mean, he had his back, everything was all done. I mean, they, he really did you know, an amazing job and, you know, all the way, you know, down the line, all the way to obviously Jason goes to hell, Adam, you know, under Sean Cunningham's direction, you know, was to make something that was very different than any of the other Fridays. And, and he's been really toasted over that for years. And he was, you know, very young guy, I think in his early twenties, you know, when he did that and, you know, he wanted to make a movie and he did the best one he could. And that there are certain fans who love that. And then there's other people who just don't think it's a real, you know, Jason kind of movie. But it's everybody's trying to do something different. You know, send him into outer space, you know, do do whatever you have to do. You know, I I was of the feeling that if we're going to do this and we have to bring him back, let's keep the same kind of, you know, ground rules that, you know, this is. Crystal Lake, except they would be stupid to keep calling it Crystal Lake. I wouldn't send my kid to Camp Crystal Lake knowing the history. So they changed the name of the whole town, you know, trying to hide that past. But it still was the turf, you know, that Jason knew. So I, I wanted to do that. And even in the sequel that I've just written to mine, um, it's the same thing is we're going back into that territory, except it's, you know, in the winter. And there's a lot of things that are, you know, different as a result. But as I was writing it, all I was thinking about was CJ, how he would do this, you know, as, as Jason again, you know, what things in it that I could do that would be different. And again, trying to make these characters likable. These ones are a little bit more nasty characters because they're all bad girls and it's all females in the entire cast other than CJ Graham. So he'll have fun once we get a chance to make it. Um, but yeah, I, you, everybody try to bring something in that hopefully makes it fresh again. CJ, do you care to weigh in? 
You know, Drew, my perspective is when people ask me, I always tell them the same answer. Oh, there were, I thought part six was the only one. There were, there were, there was movies before it and after it. Well, I didn't know that Jesus. So you just threw me off, but I will tell you in my opinion, you know, looking back on it historically and from a business perspective, you know, if, if, 1980 would have known what Harry Potter knew 10 years ago when they started the Harry Potter series. It had probably carried through from part one to part 12 in which it had uh, connectivity from each one of them so you could follow the story rather than being a little jagged. Like Tom said, each director, writer had their own uh, perspective on how it should be done, but there was no consistency, continuity. So you kind of had to connect the dots yourself. Now, going back in time, I think they had to do it again. They'd connect the dots a little closer so it wasn't so far apart. Yeah, um, I, I can see the same thing. Like, I, I love all of the Friday films for their own reasons, but it's uh, when you get to part four and six, those are the ones that you can tell, in my opinion, are the most well-crafted. Like, you know, Joe Zito and uh, Tom, they really tried to make uh, real movies out of the Friday the 13th films and almost bring respect to them, and that's what I thought was like, you know, that's why those two stand out to me the most. But, um, Tom, uh, Sheriff Garris's death wasn't in a script, nor was uh, Gravekeeper Martin's or Sissy's. Those deaths were all added in to up the body count, and then oddly enough, they got edited. Uh, the three-headed decap scene was supposed to be in the movie and also got edited. So I have to ask you, which kill did it hurt the most to not get to keep? Um, I guess off the top of my head, it was, uh, you know, seeing the three heads simultaneously go, because that was a special effect miracle, how they wired those heads and timed it. So when the machete went across, it really looked like it got one, two, three in a row. And the way they fell and things was great. All we got was that, you know, the heads hitting the ground and, you know, the bodies collapsing, which looked good. And somebody could believe that, yeah, for whatever reason, we didn't see that moment because maybe it wasn't shootable. And in the past, it wouldn't have been shootable if you didn't have you know, special effects team like we, we like we had. So that that really bothered me because that really bothered them that they put so much work in there and then you didn't get to see that. Um, seeing Sissy's head being pulled off, you know, was certainly amazing <laughs> because the skin stretched and it snapped. And I mean, it was really like, oh, my God. Um, but I kind of knew when I was shooting it that we were going to have a problem with that one because it's hard to cut around. Um, so you only got, you know, part of it. Um, and then the sheriff thing, I mean, what really we lost was just two cuts of him pushing him and him reacting and pushing him again. So it, it really wasn't like a, a major thing that was gone. Um, there, there, the, uh, one of the cops, um, when his head was grabbed by Jason and he did this, literally when, when his skull cracked, you saw a piece of the skull come up and a tiny bit of brain come up which also looked very cool and you didn't see it in the movie because they, you know, cut that out. But, you know, did I like lose any sleep over it? No, it's sort of like, that's what happens. You're going to have people that are going to say, you know, that's too much. And, you know, they made us lose it. Uh, but you look at movies and things now, I mean, it is all this stuff is so tame, but it was a, a different time. And they thought kids were out, you know, imitating these things or something. That, and that's why they had to censor them. So people wouldn't like, you know, get off on it, which is crazy. Well, I got, I have to agree with Tom on it. I mean, for me, again, none of the kills were difficult for me. Um, Sissy's head, I thought was great. 
Um, Tom may or may not remember how we got Sissy out of the window. I thought that was interesting. Um, you may remember, Tom, we couldn't figure out how to leave the slippers uh, inside the cabin. We're trying to figure out, you were trying to figure out how to rig her to pull her out. And I just asked if she's okay with it. Can I just put my hand between her legs and I'll just pull her out. And she was comfortable with it. I mean, I was wearing a glove. She's wearing her costume. And she just put her hands on my shoulders. And as soon as Tom said, action, I just picked her up right out of the window. And all you saw was two little feet <laughs> and, the, and the slippers being left behind. Uh, you know, who knew? I mean, a simple, simple way of doing something. When Mike, uh, the Michael Nomad and uh, the special effects crew were trying to figure out how they could put a wire harness on her to lift her out of the window so it didn't look hokey. Um, to me, she probably weighed 100 pounds soaking wet. And I was like, you know, if everybody's comfortable, I mean, I, I don't mean anything disrespectful, of course. And everybody agreed, including the actress, which was the most important. And everybody was comfortable. I mean, it's kind of humorous when you think about it now. Um, at the same time, you know, I think an interesting story, if you have a moment, Drew, is to have Tom tell you about a phone call he got, oh, maybe in the last year from the young girl uh, in the bed, the blonde girl, about her son wanting a hockey mask. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Yeah, the little girl played little Nancy in there that uh, CJ had this confrontation, you know, where she uh, he's leans over the bed and stuff. Um, we totally lost track of her and no idea, you know, because obviously ladies get married and they their last names change. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't see anything in the industry about, oh, this was the little girl that was in it. So I figured she must have gotten out of the business, but she managed to get in touch with us. And, you know, she was married and, and had a little boy who just loved the movie and loved, you know, CJ as Jason. And kind of, I don't know if he didn't really believe his mom was actually that little girl, you know, because I think he was six or seven himself. But, you know, he was absolutely intrigued with it. So she got a hold of me. She says, is there any way, is there any of those masks left? And I said, no. I mean, I couldn't even get one when we wrapped. They were gone so fast. Everybody grabbed one, that whatever few there were. Um, but I said, let me see if I can come up with something. And then out of the goodness of his heart, CJ had one that, that he wore. It was the one from the uh, Man Behind the Mask, right? Is that the one? Yeah, the one I had was one that had been put together by one of the special effects guys. So I used it in all my costumes. Yeah. I had two that I used for my costumes when I do uh, conventions. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he signed it and we sent it over to her and, you know, immediately took a video to, to you know, show us. And, I mean, he was he certainly was the hit of his Halloween class. Uh, or Halloween party in his class that year. So, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where you just, who would have thought, you know, 35 years ago that you'd be doing something like that? I mean, we, as I said, we were despicable people for making these things. We had to hide under David Bowie song titles. We were Aladdin Sane, you know, and it was like you couldn't let anybody know you were doing it. And then even Paramount, you know, didn't want to have their name associated with it until it was released. So, you know, to now know that it's like, you know, you know, I went into Walgreens last Halloween and, you know, there's all the masks and stuff. And I went, this is just so bizarre, you know, and it's just so mainstream now. And it's the easiest 
you know, costume to do, you know, in terms of you really need a mask and a shirt and pants and you're good to go, you know? So uh, it, it's, it's just kind of remarkable of what happened with that. Yeah, that's really nice of you, CJ. That's uh, very kind of you to do that. I actually met you and uh, I got a photo op with you. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, got a photo op with you wearing your photo op, uh, wearing your costume. And uh, I, I think that's really cool that you gave one of those masks away. Um, my next question goes into uh, goes to both of you, Tom and CJ. My wife's father is a huge fan of Jason Lives. It's his favorite film like ever, his favorite horror film. And he wanted me to ask you guys if uh, besides the bug that Cologne kills, <laughs> um, is there any animal or person that got harmed or hurt during the making of the film? Other than my ego, I guess. Um, I, I no, no, I don't, I don't think there was, you know. And I mean, that was actually a stunt bug, bug that they made. Uh, it actually had a little battery in it. It was amazing. And I think Vinny hurt his hand because the bat. No, no, it was the only thing we killed <laughs> was that bug. And uh, I don't, you know, he 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 wrote, he signed a thing, so we had a release, so his family wouldn't sue us. So we were cool at least on that front. <laughs> well um cj uh so from what i heard uh, i did a lot of research you know going into this interview and from what i heard it seemed that uh you were so dedicated to doing the underwater scenes at the end of the film that you were staying down for uh you know worrisome amounts of time can you tell us about that well i i, I don't know about the word dedicated or just stupid um they kind of are very close <laughs> um I did what I was told to do. I mean, you know, Tom had me really chained down at the bottom of an Olympic-sized diving pool. Um, safety divers, divers were wearing their real small uh, wetsuits, and it was a lot easier for them just to chain me down and give me oxygen and then unhook me every once in a while. And I'd go up and watch on a little tiny screen. Tom would just talk me through what I had done and what he wanted me to change. The divers would physically take me down and put me in the same position because you got to remember, it is nighttime. Tom had a black tarp all the way around the bottom of the pool, so I couldn't really see anything. I have one eye. Um, so the divers put me in position. They chained, and I could hear the camera. I could hear the clicking. And Tom really much said, when you're ready, this is what I want you to do. I would take some deep breaths. Um, I'd pull the regulator out of my mouth and put my mask down and do what I could do for, you know, 15, 30, 45 seconds and signal for air, and the safety divers would come back in and give me some oxygen, and we'd do it again. Uh, they'd unchain me, I'd go up to the top, and we'd all just kind of, there was a point, I think you're referring, that the safety divers started to make comment about how cold they were getting after a few hours, and Tom was more worried about me, uh, because I didn't have the wetsuit on, I was just in wardrobe, but there's a certain point when your body core gets to a point where it's better not to get in and out of the water for heat purposes. No different than being in the military and wearing a long sleeve shirt in 100 degree weather. It's better for your body because the sweat cools you off. Um, so I was okay with it until we got to a point where Tom was done and said, that's it, get everybody out. And we were done for the, the night. Um, and I think if I recall, I went over and stood in the shower right next to the pools <laughs> in full wardrobe for quite a bit of time, you know, bringing my core back up. But it was cold, but once I got to that that point of no return, I was fine with it. But that's kind of how we did it, Drew. It was just more exciting for me. Um, I don't think it was that anybody forced anything on us. It was just, we just assumed. Okay, well, yeah, that's uh, that's that's understandable. Um, 
Uh, this question goes for uh, Tom. I wanted to ask Tom, um, so the gore from Jason's neck, uh, some of that was filmed in your uh, parents' pool, mm -hmm. and like the gore clogged up their filter. Were they pissed about that? I know you had to buy them a new one. Did I? No, I think I just said, fuck it, keep it, it's a souvenir. No, um, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a thing. We, we shot in three different places for that lake. Uh, you know, the real lake, uh, which, again, having a man from the military, he went right in there, water moccasins, or God knows what was in that damn lake, but he went right out there. CJ is just amazing. And then we were at the USC Olympic pool where they train the, for the Olympics, uh, which is what CJ was just talking about with we put the black tarps and stuff. But then when we had to chop up his neck, Obviously, we couldn't put all that guck and stuff in their pool. They wouldn't allow that. Um, so I gave my father a call, who was a USC film student back in the day. So he was a thrilled that we were shooting at his alma mater. And secondly, you know, to have, you know, his son shoot something in his backyard when that was his dream to be a filmmaker. He was ecstatic. So I said, you know, but, you know, there, it, this stuff could get in the filter and stuff. Said, ah, fine, we got another filter. Don't worry about it. So, yeah, he had his little Instamatic camera and he was out there shooting. And it was it was really quite sweet and, and endearing and, you know, certainly meant a lot to both, both of us. And it gave us a chance to just, you know, do that a number of times, <laughs> you know, to try to get it just right. So the head looked like it snapped and things. So, yeah, it, it was one of those things where, you know, if you probably did it at somebody else's place, you'd get sued and you'd probably have to repaint their pool and 50,000 other things. Um, but yeah, they have somebody that just was thrilled, you know, at, at the, the idea of it. And interesting, we could only shoot in the, in the uh, deep end of the pool because on the shallow end, my youngest brother had uh, drawn uh, one dark night on the bottom of the pool and the exact same letters, you know, because he was so, you know, proud of his older brother when he made his first movie. So yeah, it was a very, uh, you know, Irish support system over there at the McLaughlin's. Well, that's good that they were excited about it and not pissed off. Um, I know you said you're working on a sequel to Jason lives uh, with that. And uh, what other projects are you currently working on? Uh, a couple of things. Um, <laughs> I just came back from Florida uh, on something that got aborted um, by the very by the very theme of why I was making it, which was racism. Um, uh, Dan Merrick, who created the Blair Witch Project, um, he came up with a new series uh, for, uh, uh, I guess you know, uh, streaming uh, called The Black Veil, and he's you know, recruited a bunch of us directors to direct a series of these things. They're like half hour horror shorts that all are about Southern Gothic horror. And I, I was about the fourth one that was supposed to do it. He did, he shot his first before the pandemic. Then the pandemic happened and everything stopped. And then when he started up again, he said, you know, let's do your script because I had already written it. And uh, mine's called The Hanging Tree and it deals with the kind of the horrors of, uh, you know, slavery and racism and, of course, the hangings, the lynchings. But instead of setting the main character there, I switched it up. So it's a very well-educated kind of upmarket girl from New York 
coming down to a conference uh, in Florida um, that is going to be sponsored by a kind of a white supremacist group, white power group, and her friend trying to talk her out of it. And you find out that this girl actually has a lot of deep-seated racism, despite, you know, Black Lives Matter, despite all the things that are going on today, she still had that very much in her. And she goes down into the situation and a kind of a, I guess the best way I could describe it, a kind of a twilight zone moment happens where she ends up at this plantation where she has to spend the night. And there's this elderly black man, you're not sure if he's real or not real. And she's challenged uh, in her belief system to change it or there's going to be consequences. So it was, you know, I mean, I've got some pretty intense corpse type horror that's, that occurs in it at the end, but the actual monster is really the whole idea of racism and how it can literally be spread almost like through your DNA, generation to generation to generation, um, as you just what you believe is truth. So we, we got down there, we literally, you know, had our cast, crew, we were 48 hours away from starting principal photography and we get a call and one of the people that was on the board of directors for the plantation decided that, no, we do not want this show here. We don't like what it's saying. We don't want it. And we were like shocked um, because as I said, it, it really dealt with, they did not want, you know, we were using one of their trees to do the hanging. They didn't want to be associated with that. So they broke their contract. This was our location. We scrambled around trying to find something else which we couldn't, and it ended up we, you know, we had to shut down and we plan on going to another, find another location and shoot it sometime of mid-July, um, which is, I'm still talking to Dan Merrick about exactly where. But it was so weird to actually make a story about that kind of a thing and then be in a town where in the center of town was a Confederate soldier, which I thought, okay, well, they still want to honor the, you know, the boys from the past, which is great. But there was a hanging tree marked as a hanging tree there. And I went, why is that still there in this day and age? And how can they be upset that we're doing a story like that? It was like they just did not want that kind of association, yet they were fine to have it in the middle of town. So, it, you know, you realize, boy, it's, so many things have not changed despite how much has changed in our world. So that's sitting there to be done. Um, and then the other thing is I put together uh, a new band that's called Horror Rock. And it's basically, we are going to play all the songs that are associated with horror movies. The ones that you, anyone that you've seen, whether it's Man Behind the Mask, you know, or, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street songs, the Sympathy from the, from the Devil. I mean, there's, there's about 50 songs that are just really cool rock and roll songs that also are associated, you know, with the horror genre. So we're, you know, working on that now and hopefully somewhere near the top of next year, you know, the band will be ready and the plan is to play the conventions and stuff on like the Saturday night VIP parties so that people can dance and obviously recognize every single song, you know, if you're a horror fan. That sounds amazing. Uh, CJ, do you have anything uh, coming up? Well, I'm thinking about learning how to sing so I can be in the band with Tom. There you go. <laughs> but just in case, if he needs a bodyguard, I'm still in. I'm still holding my own. Uh, but you know what? I uh, retired four years ago, so I have a ranch in Montana. Um, I have the pleasure of 
three decades later getting phone calls to do conventions. Um, I had the honor of last month being in uh, Days of the Dead Las Vegas with Alice Cooper. Uh, in two weeks, I'll be at Crypticon in uh, Kansas City. And then here in about a week and a half, I'll be up in Seattle working with Tom on the Friday the 13th Bloodlines, which uh, we'll both be playing some characters from the original uh, Vengeance that we did a couple years ago. And there'll be some surprise appearances I hear too in the movie, uh, which we can't talk about yet. But from what I hear, the people, the fans are going to be very surprised and entertained, you know. You know, and it, I, I won't, I won't drop anybody's, you know, because it's not fair. But yeah, there's an interesting uh, things that have come up, and you know, there are quite a few uh, actors and actresses that are from the different genres uh, during the '80s that are going to make appearances, cameos. Uh, so I think it'll be pretty exciting for the fans. Um, I finished 13 Fanboy about a year and a half ago, about a month before the pandemic with Deborah Voorhees. And I just heard from her about a week ago, two weeks ago, that they found a, a distributor and they're going to start distribution here shortly. So I'm excited for that to come out. And that's got everybody from Corey Feldman to uh, Dee Wallace has the lead. Of course, Kane Hodder's in it. Uh, Laura Park Lincoln, a few other alumni from the convention circuit. That's good. And uh, are you guys on uh, social media? Can anybody find you online? Yeah. Um, I have like two places you can find me. One, obviously, Facebook, which is under Tommy McLaughlin. Um, and then uh, I have my band, The Sloss, which I've been doing for like 10 years now. And that's thesloss.org, which has all of our, you know, we're just starting to get back out there again after the pandemic because we had so many things that got canceled. But, uh, you know, that's another way, you know, to see what's going on in my world. And, you know, for me, just go to any post office. It'll say wanted, Jason. Uh, so I'm up on the board. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's real simple. Just if you, jason6.com, you can pull me up. There's a website and or, you know, Facebook uh, through social media. It's been very successful and very good to me. Um, so I just try to do what I can to maintain the connectivity for the fans I wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for Tom, of course. But more importantly, beyond that, if it wasn't for the fans, Tom nor I would be having this conversation. So, yeah. And it, exactly as, as CJ was saying, you know, it really, really is about, you know, the, the fans, the people that somehow had their lives affected by the movie, all the movies. Um, and that they are, you know, everybody is so kind, so sweet. You know, it's like when I used to be a member of, uh, used to be, well, because you haven't done one in a while, but the Masters of Horror, a group that Mick Garris put together of all of us horror directors. And I'm talking about everybody from Rob Zombie to Wes Craven to John Carpenter, everybody. And you get all us all together and we're all just like CJ and I are, you know, very appreciative, you know, low key, you know, love each other's films. You know, there's something about the horror community that, really is a, like a, a bond, like a family of, yeah, we all love this stuff. It doesn't mean that, you know, we're sick or weird as we thought when we were all by ourselves, but you suddenly go to this convention, you go, wow, there's a lot of fucked up people here, but we all love each other. We all, you know, they're all tattooed with CJ's images and Freddie's images and stuff. And it's like, you know, they wear it, I mean, on their bodies and whoever thought, you know, that would ever happen with these little low budget horror movies that we were making in the eighties. So it's, if it wasn't for all these people, you know, we wouldn't be here today and we certainly 
can't say that we did anything of great art, but they've let, you know, made it into a level that's like, this is amazing. I mean, that fans are funding Friday the 13th fans to make them. That's never happened in the history of movie making ever. And it's all because, you know, it's tied up in a lawsuit. So it's like, screw it. Let's, let's all put money in the bucket. Let's go make one. And that's what vengeance is. And, and they're, and the, the level is getting better and better on these things. They're bringing in more and more, you know, really talented, impressive, and the original people like Harry Manfredini doing the music. I mean, that's incredible. Same guy that did all that stuff all the way up through, was it part eight, I think. Um, and Harry's just, again, another loving, wonderful, just loves to do what he does. So it, it is a blessing. It's true. Friday the 13th Part 6 is one of the first ones I saw in the series. I was probably about six or seven, and I remember watching it with my dad. It's probably, and it's always it's always stuck with me. Uh, you guys made Part 6, and that was 35 years ago. And, I mean, how many times do you see the sixth entry in a film franchise that a lot of people go, yeah, that's the best one. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing with directing is, is you, you pick the right team and they make you look good. And I mean, and if you make those wrong decisions, you know, you're going to be stuck with something that isn't going to quite work. And I was incredibly fortunate that I had a cast and a crew and a DP and a production designer and, you know, the, the, the support of the executive producer and everybody, you know, fills fills in their parts in a way that it somehow all comes together that doesn't always happen and having made 42 you know theatrical films now you know this still is the one that i look at and go we had the most amount of fun we you know we enjoyed the experience and we're still a family 35 years later you know everybody still cares about each other we still stay in touch it's an amazing experience and then like to have something happen like last week it, it came out uh, somebody released a story that uh, when they went through Rotten Tomatoes, the reviews, they they counted up the points of all the reviewers over the years. And number one was the original Friday the 13th, which totally makes sense because that was the one that kind of broke the whole thing through. But we were number two, which basically makes us the number one in terms of sequels out of all the sequels. I was flabbergasted, honored, and just amazed that uh, out of all the critics, it was up there. And if you look at the, all the other ones that were talked about, they talked very positively about all of them, the, the guy that did the article, but all he was doing was kind of counting up the points of what the reviewers had to say. And that's just amazing over all these years that it, you know, it remains that high in, in, in terms of people's, you know, favor. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it is my favorite entry in the series. And uh, Drew and I can't thank you both enough for being on here today so we could celebrate the 35th anniversary of Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Thank you both so much. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Take care, you two. Bye-bye. Thanks to all you listeners out there, you horror hounds and smokers. Thank you for tuning in. It's great that Tom's parents were so cool about him ruining their pool filter. Also, it was pretty awesome that CJ was able to give a mask to Courtney Vickery, who played Nancy, to give to her kid, who is now a fan of the movie. And that'll about... Wait, 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 wait. We're not done. What are you doing? We're not Wh done. Wait, what? I got Vincent Guastafaro in the fucking room. Vincent? Vincent Guastafaro? You bangs? You bang. The, wherever the red dot goes, you bang. You bang. We got you bang here. <laughs> oh, shit. Well, let's talk to him, let's then. Let's do it. Vincent Guastafaro has worked on the hit shows Criminal Minds and Castle. 
He's also done some work in films, such as studio features and indie movies. You all know him as Yabang, Deputy Rick Cologne from Jason Lives. Welcome, Vincent Guastafano. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Drew. Uh, yes, it's so fun to be on a, a podcast where you guys are like absolute. You, you're the epitome of what I call horror fans. You, you, you guys are <laughs> buried in it, and it's so fun because when I wore today, look at the shirt I wore. No lives matter. Oh, I love it! I love it. <laughs> this is the shirt I wear when I go to like conventions and, uh, you know, uh, those horror cons. And this is my little. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. I love it. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Jason Necklace is awesome. Yeah. Um, so you just you just mentioned conventions. Um, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, do you attend conventions often, like before COVID? And um, uh, how many times are you asked to say you bang? <laughs> oh, my God. A thousand. The last big convention <laughs> we were at right before COVID hit. I mean, we really, well, well we got back like December 1st of uh 2019 and then it all fell apart the whole convention circuit but the last one we went to was magnificent it was in tampa and it just happened to fall on the 31st of october so it was halloween and a four-day convention horror fest convention in tampa at the convention center and the, the people all decided, the fans all decided, which is why I love horror fans, they all decided to come to the convention in their Halloween costume. So you see people walking around dressed like some guy with his head split open and has a dog collar on his little kid who's walking with him and still acting like, a, like <laughs> you know, he's a victim or something. I mean, it was really a wonderful show. And we had a good time there. And then, uh, you know, met a lot of people that we didn't know before. And uh, I brought my wife, Cynthia, with me. She uh, played Annette in the movie. She's one of the, the blonde women who gets, she gets skewered on the motorcycle, if you remember, on the little scooter. She goes to the park mm -hmm. to make out with her boyfriend, Roger. And Jason shows up after stabbing the cemetery guy in the throat with the glass bottle. And then he comes over and with that same picket he tore off the fence at the beginning, he just he, he mm -hmm. pops them. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. Drew, ask your questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. That's why we love doing these things, man. Talk away. Anyway, um, I well, are you a horror fan in general? Wait, let me finish that beat then. So I brought her and she got a lot of attention at the tables because there are a lot of collectors who showed up with posters that already had my signature on it and other people, but they didn't have Annette yet. And so the convention was very good for her too. And we had fun. Go ahead. And, and she signed the autograph. She signed posters. She signed posters, autographs, did selfies. She, uh, it was a big outing for her. You know what I mean? Because she had not done any of them before. Yeah, that's that's really cool, especially, you know, after all these years, you know, to, for her to, you know, get some spotlight and get some recognition. You know, that's that's really cool, actually. Yeah, that's really cool. I appreciate um, are, are you a horror fan in general? Besides uh, Jason Lives, like, are you a horror fan? Um, did you watch the Friday the 13th series or anything besides Jason Lives? Oh, I told you, no, before I got the job, I hadn't watched any of the Fridays, but I'm, I 
was a horror fan from being a kid. I mean, not a diehard horror fan. I didn't subscribe to Fangoria and all of that. I just, uh, I had friends that were into it. They introduced me to it. But the movies that scared me are probably really old and you wouldn't know about them, like Creature of the Black Lagoon and the first werewolf movie when the transition on the guy's face happened on screen. It fucked me up. I couldn't sleep for weeks. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the Universal Classic Monster movies. Me and John both do. Oh, great. Oh, that's so great. They are, they mm-hmm. are the ones I grew up on. And then later, of course, you know, I got a little freaked out by Rosemary's Baby. The Exorcist ruined my life for a couple of years. You know, <laughs> I, you know, I grew up. I grew up a Catholic boy, and that that shit played heavy on me. You know, I'm thinking, oh my god, you know. But uh, uh, you know uh, that, and then uh, you know, I know it doesn't. It's not officially a horror movie, but uh, Jaws stopped me from swimming in the ocean for a couple of years. You know, I only yeah. go in up to here now. I don't do any more, no more scuba or no more shit like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you brought up The Exorcist as well because uh, that movie messed me up as well. That movie fucked me up. In our last episode, I believe, I discussed how The Exorcist like ruined me for a whole summer. So I grew up in a Christian household. You grew up in a Catholic household. It seems like, you know, the religious households are the people that, you know, get affected the most by that movie. Yeah. Well, devil power scares the shit out of you, you know. You know, I mean, it's scarier than a guy coming around with a, uh, uh, you know, what's 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 some of the other killing weapons, but you know, I love Jason, but he's a classic horror hero. You know, he is really a monster, and, and of course, and some of the scariest movies I've ever seen are when people are the monsters. You know, and and I can't mm-hmm. take credit for that quote because that came from. Um, the director of Friday the 13th part six, Tom McLaughlin. Uh, and you know, he says he writes, he writes, he writes well. I mean, he's such a good writer, my God, but he, um, he's the one who said that to me. And ever since then, I started paying attention to things like Henry, the serial killer, and you know, mm-hmm. things where you see, this is truly horror, you know, this is, and then my, a friend of mine was on, um, criminal minds for a number of years and he told me that a lot of the cases that they base their shows on are taken from actual cases in the uh, in the uh, FBI files or in CIA yeah FBI files and when you think about it like somebody like shaved his wife face off with the cheese grater and then buried her in the basement in an ice cube tank or some something you know it's pretty scary. So those are the ones that still get me. I mean, Silence of the Lambs, you know, what can I say? That old British guy scared the shit out of me. <laughs> uh, Anthony Hopkins. Well, what I mean, you know. So. Well, um, looking back uh, 35 years now, um, how proud are you of Jason Lives and the work that you and everybody put into it? How out of it? I'm sorry. No, no, no. How much, uh, how proud of, how oh, proud Jesus. of the film are you, you and the what? work everyone it's, put into it's it? It's a fake. Look, listen, I'm telling you the truth here. I, I've been in other movies, right? I've been in some movies directed by big shots, even though the movies didn't get a lot of notoriety. Barry Levinson, Michael Mann, Woody Allen, they're all big shots. And when their movies came out, they did whatever they did. 
this movie is now almost 40 years old and I still have people talking to me about it. Nobody comes up to me and says, oh man, I really liked you in that Woody Allen movie. Well, maybe some people do, but they're Woody Allen buffs or something like that, you know? But horror buffs are out there. They know how to grab for their passion. They'll find different ways to manifest it, like you guys with this great show, you know? Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. You know, uh, you know, horror fans are the best fans in the world. So for me to say this was one of my my best filming experiences ever, I, I wouldn't be lying to say that. And I was in good hands. I was with good actors. Tom Matthews and I are still friends. Uh, Tom McLaughlin and I were friends before that and are still friends. Uh, I don't know if you know this part of the history. I'll tell you now. Tom McLaughlin directed me in a theater play, in a play, in the theater. Uh, and he and I hit it off well. And he's one of the few guys in Hollywood I know that said, when I start directing my movie, I want you in it. And I thought, yeah, I've heard that like 50 times. And you know what? The phone rang. It was Tom. He said, I want you in my movie. It was a turning point for me to have an opportunity to be in a Paramount movie that already had a life behind it. And I liked his ideas. The script was just great. Yeah. Okay. I'm going on too much. <laughs> no, uh, well, yeah, you did a, you did a great job in the film and, uh, you know, it's, it's good. You know, it's, I'm glad that you're very proud of, you know, the film and, and the horror fan base that, you know, that's attached to the film. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, how did you come to be in, uh, never hike in the snow? Uh, the the ghost cut i believe and you're in the sequels as well right yeah sure oh i'm so glad you asked you know the uh the kid is brilliant you know the director kid who wrote them vincent desanti vincente desanti and uh <clears throat> he did never hike in the snow and used tom matthews in it as the ambulance driver at the end no, not Never Hike in the Snow, Never Hike Alone. And Tom Matthews did a cameo at the end as the ambulance driver, and they leave it hanging like there's going to be further confrontation between Jason and, and uh, what the fuck is his name now? Tom. Tommy? Is it Tommy? Yeah. Tommy Jarvis. Okay. Tom Matthews is a great guy, and I thank him for this. So he went out to Vin with Vinny for lunch to talk about what, what are we going to do next? What's going to be the next chapter of this? And Tom Matthews said, I think we should bring Rick back because there's a lot of conflict between Rick and Tommy that we can play on. And, and we're both unified in only one thing. We got to fucking get Jason, you know? So, uh, I was really grateful that he just wrote the part for me. And he said, what do you think? And I said, count me in. Let's go. So we had a great time filming that, too. I mean, we, we shot it really quick. He's a good film filmmaker in that, you know, he knows what he's dealing with. He's, he's not dealing with a studio budget. He's dealing with a budget. And so he mapped it out perfectly. You know, so many days at this location, so many days here, two days there, done. And then go to start assembling the film, editing it and stuff. So I, I, I like that about him. And he made the filming experience of Never Hike 
uh, in the snow really good. How did I get involved? Just like I said, Tom Matthews said, wouldn't it be funny if Tom and Vinny were still calling each other fucking names? You know what I mean? Uh, like we do in real life. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, I'm proud of them. Did you see it? I mean, did you see Never Hike in the Snow? Uh, yeah, we, we've seen both of them. Uh, the Never Hike Alone and Never Hike yeah. in the Snow. Well, so the, the big difference is Never Hike Alone is almost an hour long. It's like 56 minutes or something. And he had to keep the story small. And that guy who played the lead in it, oh, I forget his name, the young kid who played the lead in it, was just fabulous with the found footage technique of using his phone and doing that. Uh, but he knew that the second one would have a better film quality. It was going to have more money to throw into it, even though it was going to be shorter. And so we had the aerial shots at the beginning. We had, uh, I think he had them in the other one too, but we had more of them. We had moving aerial shots. We had some nighttime shooting where he let the glow of the cops, the lights on the cop cars hit our faces, be red. You know what I mean? So there were a lot of cool things about uh, Never Hike in the Snow that they didn't have available to them in the first one. But the story was, I'll admit it, I thought it was short. I said, oh, don't fucking end there. We want more, you know? Uh, so, you know. Uh, but I'm proud of both of them. And, uh, you know, there's two more coming out and Rick is still alive. So my fingers are crossed, you know, <laughs> he's not going to kill me yet. Yeah. Hopefully we definitely get more of, uh, of Rick in the next two. And, uh, how did it feel to work with Tom Matthews 30 plus years later? Uh, a lot of fun because, uh, I don't know what you know about him, but he's a really fun guy and he's a bit of a prankster. You know what I mean? So he likes uh, fucking with people uh, and making you laugh and catching you off, you know, off balance and throwing a line at you during a scene. Uh, even you know, even in, in uh, Never Hike in the Snow when he's in the back of the car and he calls me Rick the Dick. He made it up on the moment, you know. And after that, we both busted out laughing. And I thought, oh, I hope they keep that. That was so fun, you know. So uh, I really love the kid. I think he's really good. I don't mean to call him a kid, but I am older than him. Uh, but we're still good friends. He lives nearby. I, you know, I know his wife. I know his kids. He's got beautiful dogs. So next. And uh, why, why do you think that Rick would have stayed on the force after all these years seeing what he saw? It, was it still just to catch Jason? You know, this is a great question because Vinny DeSanti, the writer, and I uh, talked about this. And he said it's simply because Rick could not go home. Because the reason he's down in Crystal Lake in the first place is he fucked up on his job up in New York or where, whatever city he came down from. He, he messed up and had a friend. And that friend said, I'll save your career, but you go into Podunk. And he, and he puts him in Crystal Lake, Crystal Spring, whatever the name of the town is now. Uh, and yeah, so my reason for staying on is 
Garris is, <laughs> you know, God damn, we all saw what happened to Garris, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and the town people trusted me enough because I wasn't, they didn't think I was hiding anything from them, but I think that that's now starting to come out in, in, uh, in alone in snow that there's shit going on there that we're just trying to not have the town people latch onto and be afraid of, but it's still going on. And right now, as of the end of never hike in the snow, the only two people that know that are me and Tommy. So I don't even know if I answered you. (laughs) No, 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 no. You definitely did. Uh, Going back to uh, part six, uh, any of my friends that aren't big horror fans or big Jason fans, whenever they go, oh, which one was part six? And I always say, you know what the guy says, wherever the red dot goes, you bang. <laughs> so h- how does it feel to have the most memorable line in the oh, movie? It's so great. Uh, you know, oh boy. Tom, the director... <laughs> really encouraged that he was big on the word you bang because I used it a lot in real life. And he would laugh his ass off every time I said, I say you bang, you know, and, and, and uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he said, we got to find a way to, to, to put it in, put it in, put it in. And then uh, he gave me the laser gun and I said, well, here it is right here. You know, a- anyway, The line emerged organically from me with the permission of my director, and it has lived on, I don't know, what has it been, 40 years? Now, this is what I was saying to you earlier. I haven't said a line in anybody else's movie that's lived on for 40 years, you know, and I've been in some pretty fucking good movies. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going. Yeah, I was originally going to ask, because it felt like that was a very Tom line to write, but that was more... Or from you, and then Tom just kind of incorporated it? Yeah, well, he he encouraged me throughout the entire filmmaking process to to bring as much Vinny to it as he as I can. Uh because I mean, he had just worked with me in a play in which it was a comedic play, and I played the funniest guy in the play. And he said, I want that energy in my film. You know, he tried to introduce humor, children, the first, you know, whatever, uh, RV to flip over on its side. And they never had that budget before. And it's funny because they only had one RV and one one take on that. But, I I mean, all of the things, no tits. I mean, in every other Friday the 13th movie before that, there was nudity and cursing. And so he tried to do something really that I think is hard, which is to make something that is scary, but without, let's say, vul- the vulgarities that are more typical uh, that audiences expect. And the response to the movie was like, oh, God, that was refreshing. And when the little kids said this, and when you know, when they refer back to things in this movie that are just that are just living for forty freaking years, you know. I, last convention I went to, I was with Darcy DeMoss. God, that woman has been made basically a star based on this movie. I mean, she's done other stuff, of course, but uh, you know, 
getting her face smashed into the window of the RV. You know, she had those plastic molds made, just like the one that comes in the movie. And when you go to the convention, she'll sign one of those for you and give it to you. So that's an awesome piece of, uh, what do you call, merch. So, uh, but anyway, what was your question again? Oh, I was just I was just uh, asking if that was more of a collaboration for the Yabang line. Listen, everything's a collaboration for an actor because you got to get permission from your director to do it, unless they just cut you loose. And some people do that in some comedies. Tom was generous, but he wanted to know, you know, like what's going to be your final line. And if he laughed at it, it was usually in the movie. So, you know. And uh, do you have any favorite moments uh, from on the set of making part six? From on the set? Oh, you yes. mean the experience of it? Because, we, yeah, well, the set was always fun because of Tom. I mean, Tom Matthews, I, I told you, he was a prankster. He would make wisecracks when you you pick up the shotgun. He says, you know, something, I can't even, I'm not even clever enough to come up with the shit that he says. You know, but he... Uh, that whole sequence we shot in the precinct, starting with me coming in with the Chinese food, going all the way into throw them into the cell flash or whatever I call them, something there. Uh, that whole thing was just a really great bonding for me and Tom. Uh, I don't even think Garris is in a lot of that scene. He leaves me with them. And uh, Megan and Tom and I had a fabulous time. Now, I, I don't know whatever happened to Jennifer. Uh, she doesn't do the circuit of conventions, and she's hard to get in touch with. But um, uh, Tom is available, and he just happens to live nearby. And he just happens to be half Italian. And he likes to smoke cigars and weed. And he likes to drink wine. And, you know, he's a generous uh, character, is what I'm saying. So we spend time together. I mean, why not? You know? That's awesome to hear that you guys are still friends all these years after making the movie. Uh, do you have any upcoming projects coming up? Well, the, the, the next hikes, right? And then, uh, no, I don't have a lot. I don't. I mean, I got, you know, little projects working on the side that, you know, I was a teacher for a number of years as well. I had a studio and a lot of those students, they've graduated, meaning that they're older now. Like some of my students are 36 and whatever. And they're all in the middle of that, that time in their career where things are getting hot for them. and. I have such a good relationship with them that they'll call me. They'll call me for advice. They'll call me for coaching. They'll say, why don't you come in and look at this? We're doing a green screen project. So I still have a very hands-on relationship with the people that I have worked with, you know? And in terms of auditioning for, for professional stuff, I'm like everybody else out here. I get, you know, it's all self-tape now. You don't get to walk into a room anymore and say, hey, Lynn Stallmaster, how you doing? Uh, you know, I can't, I, you can't see my hand, uh, but trying to take some <laughs> fucking guy's hand, that stuff's over. You know what I mean? 
you actually used to walk into a room, shake a couple of hands, talk with each other for a bit. They say, let's see the scenes. Oh, I like that. Go over that again. Let's do that. Let's do this. They work with you a little to see if you're going to be workable, you know, tractable uh, when you're on the set. And uh, I worked a lot because of that, because I was always good in the room. But now, I mean, literally, it's an iPhone on a holder with this little ring light that I got here. I hope the lighting's okay. And, um, and that's your one shot. That's your one shot is a good self-tape to get a good role on some of these developing shows like on Amazon and, and Netflix, uh, you know, because network is almost done for. I mean, I had an audition for Shameless last year and actually got the part and then falsely tested positive for COVID and they just dropped me from the show, you know, because they said, no, no way. You know, and I said, but look, I've already been proven negative by your own. Doesn't matter. Test positive once you're out. Uh, but that was my last network audition. You know what I mean? So my whole focus now has shifted over to all of this new media. It's all new media now. And I'm glad to be a part of it, man. I'm still pumping, you know. Well, we're definitely glad you were able to join us today. Okay, well, I'm glad, too. You guys are nice. It was fun. I hope I didn't cross any lines. I, I know I dropped a couple of F-bombs, but, you know. Oh, no, no. You, you can say whatever you want, pretty yeah. much. So, uh, is this going to be on? Uh, yep, yep. Uh, this will be on... Um, next Monday. Yeah, next Monday. Oh, cool. And you said you're going to cut it together with segments from the other guys. Uh, uh Yep. Yeah. Jason and Tom, right? Uh, what's his name? JD, JP. Uh, we, we, we talked to Tom McLaughlin and um, CJ Graham as well. Right. That's what I, I couldn't think of the initials. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you for having me. If this is it, fine. I hope I did my job in terms of talking to you and sharing information with you. And Oh, we definitely, we definitely appreciate it having right. you. Well, we'll talk about Shocker next time. That was a proud moment, too. Sounds All good. Right. See ya. Have a good night. Thank you. Wow, I can't believe that we got to talk to Vinny G, a.k.a. Deputy Rick Colon, a.k.a. Yabang. Yabang. It's awesome that he and Tom Matthews are still close 35-plus years later. And tune in next week when we speak with abnormal attraction actor and comedian Craig Loigren. You can follow us online on Facebook and Instagram at High on Horror 420 and Twitter at High underscore Horror. You can also reach out to us via email, highonhorror420 at gmail.com. And now I think that'll about wrap her up on our 35th anniversary episode of Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Yep, no more surprises. Catch us later. Bye, guys.